begin and we'll get started here in some time reflecting on a word from our sponsor, the Lord God. You know, we've been in a series uh, entitled New over the last few weeks. We've gone over seven things, and this is the last week in the series. Just to remind you, we talked about the new covenant, a new record, that is a record before God has been made new, a new identity, our adoption as children of God, a new heart, a new master, a new community. And this is the last Sunday, and this, this Sunday we're looking at kind of the culmination of the new, the new heavens and the new earth. And... Um, as we think about that idea, I wanted to introduce you to a gentleman by the name of Jerome Gropman, not a f- well-known family name around the world, but Dr. Gropman is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he's written any number of books reflecting on his experience in the medical profession. One of those is entitled The Anatomy of Hope, How People Prevail in the Face of Illness. He's taken this years of watching people go through very serious types of illnesses and things and has reflected, how do people cope? How do people deal with that? And probably I think the keynote quotation from the book is this one. He says, hope, I have come to believe, is as vital to our lives as the very oxygen that we breathe. Isn't that interesting? As vital to our lives as the oxygen we breathe. In saying that, Dr. Gropman has identified something that theologians and philosophers and psychologists and psychiatrists over the years have recognized. As a matter of fact, a number of months ago, I referred to a gentleman by the name of Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish psychiatrist in Germany, who was taken by the Nazis and put into Auschwitz. He lost his parents. He lost his wife. And after the war, he survived Auschwitz, and after the war, he wrote a book, Uh, And in that book, it was entitled Man's Search for Meaning. He says something very similar. He says, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. What these, these two gentlemen are recognizing is that God has built into us, into the very fabric of our nature, the need for hope. Now, I'd like to introduce you to another friend of mine this morning along these lines. This is uh, Mike and uh, Mike Francis and his wife, Maria. Um, Mike came to know Christ as a sophomore in college at University of California at Berkeley. And um, after he graduated, he went to law school at Cal Berkeley. And in his first year law school, he met Maria. And they fell in love and were married. And after finishing law school, he practiced law for nine years in Seattle, Washington, and then the Lord got a hold of him in some unique ways, and he ended up with he and his wife and three children moving from Seattle, Washington, all the way down to Orlando, Florida, to attend Reform Seminary in Orlando, Florida. And after graduating from there in 2000, he became the pastor of Emanuel Presbyterian Church in Deland, Florida. So quite an interesting travel. I got to know Mike through a pastor's program that I was involved with for a number of years, and uh, just a friendly and great, great pastor, great heart. And last Sunday, Mike preached, and then after there, went home and spent time with his family on Sunday. And Monday, early Monday morning, Mike had a massive heart attack and ended up in the hospital in Florida, where he, even this morning, continues to be in hospital. He has been in coma. He hasn't awakened yet. 
And uh, his wife and family obviously are in deep distress during this. And people all around the, the world have been praying for Mike and for Maria during this time. Now, we need hope. The question this morning would be, where is Mike supposed to find hope? Where is Maria supposed to find hope in the midst of this life crisis? What Mike would say to us if he were standing here this morning is that his hope is in Jesus' return and in Jesus transforming our broken world into the new heavens and the new earth. So what we want to explore this morning as we reflect upon not just what Mike is going through, but what we all must go through, because you know what George Bernard Shaw once said, he said the statistics on death are very impressive. One out of every one, barring, of course, the return of Jesus. So we all have to grapple with what Maria is grappling with right now, what Mike is dealing with, even in his comatose condition. Can we have hope? Can we really believe and have hope in eternal life? Can we really believe that God has plans for us that go beyond our existence in this earth and in, the, in these bodies? So what we want to do this morning is to ask that question, what can we have hope in regarding eternal life? What can we have hope in? So the first thing I want us to do this morning is to ask ourselves this question. Okay, hope for eternal life. But what happens between the time, if, we, if the Lord tarries, and between the time where we pass away and Jesus comes again? What happens in that, in that period of time? Now, what has traditionally been called by students of the Bible, it's called the intermediate state. And I've never really heard a sermon on the intermediate state. We're not going to spend our whole time talking about that, but I think it's really important for us to grapple with uh, this understanding of what happens. The Bible doesn't say a lot about this idea of the intermediate state. Uh, it does say that at death, believers go immediately to be with Jesus. Well, where does it say that, Bob? Well, one place is, among many, is when Jesus was on the cross and the dying thief said to him, Jesus, include me in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So there's this immediacy that when a person who believes in Christ dies, they will immediately be with him in paradise. Paul, uh, Paul wrote in Philippians, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Not a perspective too many people have had through the centuries. If I am to live, he says, in this flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed, he says, between the two. My desire is to actually depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. So you see what Paul is saying here, though? He says, for me to live in the flesh means fruitful labor right now, but my preference would be literally to die so I can go and immediately be with Christ. So if, nothing, if we know nothing else, we know that this idea of the intermediate state is immediately going to be with Jesus. And yet in what condition? What condition do we go be with Jesus? Obviously, our bodies don't go and be with him, even though Jesus rose from the dead and has a, 
physical body today, our bodies don't go to be with him. Our souls go to be with him. Back in the 1600s, a group of over 150 persons gathered to reflect upon a whole, the whole belief system of what it means to follow Christ. And, uh, and the, they wrote something called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And about the intermediate state, they wrote this. The bodies of men, obviously men and women, after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. You begin to catch a glimpse there of what the Bible teaches by reflecting upon this. Our, our bodies literally die and ashes to ashes, dust to dust, but the, our souls, it says, go and are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, just like Paul said, to be with Christ immediately, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. We'll come back to that in a minute. But we see this idea of the intermediate state is when our souls go to be with the Lord, and yet our bodies remain as dust in the earth. Now, the first time I really grappled with this was actually after I had been ordained, and I was going to go participate in the burial, the, the gravesite uh, service of my grandfather years ago. And uh, as, we were, as I was preparing to go to that, I, I, I was thinking, I don't know too much about this. And so I read some different things. And one thing I read was by a guy named John Owen, who comes from the same time frame that the Westminster Confession was written around the 1640s, 1650s and there. And this man, John Owen, was preaching a sermon at the death of one of his friends. But he asked this question, and it was so simple, but it was so profound. He said, why are we so scared of death? We know that if we're in Christ, we're going to be with the Lord, but why, why are we so scared of it? And he said, well, it's very simple. Our bodies and our souls have always existed together. We've always experienced them as a unity. And the way that God originally created us were to be body and soul together. And so this idea of the soul being separated from the body is something which is not only something we've never experienced, so we're, we're scared of the things we haven't experienced, but he said that isn't the way God originally designed it to be. And so it's just, it's, it's unusual and it's different. It's not the way things were meant to be, but it is for a period of time. And that is why they call it intermediate, because that's not the way it's going to be forever. And yet we know that when we die, before Christ comes, if we die, we'll go to be with him immediately. A tremendous sense of comfort, and yet that's not the end of the story. So what is the end of the story? Well, we have to ask three questions to identify that. The first question is this. What are we designed for? What are we created for? How has God made us to actually be? The second question is, what are the new heavens and the new earth? And the third question is, what about this thing that you're saying about a new body that the Westminster Confession was reflecting on? What, what does the Bible teach about that? Well, first, let's look at what are we created for? 
And this is kind of a summary statement that I thought would be helpful for us. We were created as whole beings with body and soul united. This is the way God made us. If we look back in Genesis and we read the story in Genesis of Adam and Eve and the way that we were originally created, our bodies and our souls were united together. Our great hope is not a disembodied existence in some intermediate state, but a resurrected existence with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit together with all the saints on a new earth. That is what we were created for, to have bodies eternally existing with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, Jesus having a body, body eternally, on a new earth. That is what we were created for. And so we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul is writing and talking about this issue of death, he tells the Corinthians, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who fall asleep. Now, first fruits obviously is the beginning of the harvest. It's the very beginning of the harvest. And, and what Paul's saying is Christ is the very first of all those who have fallen asleep. And then later he says, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, so that's already happened in the resurrection on Easter morning. And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those who belong to Christ, what? Those who belong to Christ receive new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. So when Christ returns, he will raise the dead and unite our, our spirits or our souls with our resurrected bodies. Just like that, and we will enjoy him and one another forever. And we'll enjoy him, not often some ethereal place, but in what the Bible teaches is the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, Bob, so what about this new heavens and the new earth? What does the Bible say about that? Well, we get glimpses of that in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 65, Isaiah's writing, and he says that God says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And there's many other places in the Old Testament that give us this indication of this idea of the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, there's a passage which says, The earth shall be filled with the glory of God like the waters cover the sea and many other passages which give us indicators, but it's not really till we get to the New Testament that we learn in more detail about how God will renew and purify and cleanse this world. Probably the go-to passage on this more than any other, though there are many passages we could look at, is this passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 23. There we get a better indication of what's going to happen. Paul writes there, the creation waits right now, the condition we're in right now, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. This is back at the time of the fall, of the time of our rebellion against God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. See, there's that key word hope again in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The hope that we have is that this creation is going to experience a renewal. Paul goes on and says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. You see what Paul's saying there? He's saying, we grieve, we, we groan in our bodies. I almost feel like saying, can I have an amen? You know, you know, we groan in our bodies. We groan when we hear about Mike Francis having a heart attack and being laid up in a coma. We groan when we hear about, about childbirths where children don't survive in the childbirth. We groan when we hear about so many different things, brain tumors like Vice President Biden's son who passed away last night from a brain tumor came back suddenly just this month after they thought he was in remission. We groan when we hear about those things. We groan when we finish working out at the YMCA and our bodies are hurting and struggling. And Paul says not only we groan, but the whole creation groans. Waiting, and he says, waiting is if it's like it's on tiptoe for this redemption that's going to happen when Jesus comes again. And this redemption is going to be a renewal of the whole creation. Now, what is that going to be like? Well, one thing we know for certain, it's not going to be exactly like it was before we rebelled against God. You know, God gave Adam and Eve marriage together before the fall, before rebellion. And marriage is a beautiful thing. It's a pre-fall condition. And yet, Jesus says there's not going to be marriage in, in the new heavens and the new earth. We read in Revelation chapter 21 that when the new heavens and the new earth take place, there's going to be no more need for a sea. There's going to be no need for the sun and the moon as the primary light sources because God himself is going to be the primary light source. We really can't get our heads around what it's going to be like, but one thing we can affirm, and that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no heart of man can begin to imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Whatever the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like, it's like nothing we can begin to dream of, and we're going to be with Jesus and each other for eternity. But what about this idea of new bodies? What's going to happen with new bodies? And the, the basic thing we have to understand about this is our bodies, the scriptures teach, are going to be like Jesus' body after he was resurrected. Paul says this in Philippians 3, again Philippians, he says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like what? Like his glorious body. Well, how are you going to do that? By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The same Jesus Christ who rose from the dead, who has a new body and who dwells now with the Father in his new body, is going to make our lowly bodies to be like his. And we will have those bodies with him forever. What happened to Jesus on Easter morning 2,000 years ago is a model for what will happen to us. Well, we said we need to have hope, don't we? We said we need to have hope. What does this hope look like? 
It's interesting. I was, uh, I was talking to a, a friend of mine whose, grands, whose grandson uh, asked him, he said, Grandpa, what is hope? And my, fu- my friend kind of grappled with that for a few moments, and, um, and, he, and he said to himself, well, I'll tell you what. Hope is wanting something good to happen. It's expecting it to happen, but not quite being sure that it will happen. You catch what he's saying there? He said, hope is, is hoping it's going to happen, but not quite sure it's going to happen. Well, my friend's grandson heard his answer. He thought about it for a few moments. He said, you know, Grandpa, that's not hope. That's not hope. And my friend said, you know, he was right. My answer wasn't what the Bible teaches. It turns out that the Oxford English Dictionary gives us two meanings for hope. The first is what my friend said to his grandson. It's kind of this desire, this, this entertaining an expectation without real, really a level of certainty to it. The second definition is a hope that has a certainty, a confidence, an absolute trust. So how do we gain this hope, and why is it important for us to understand this hope of a new heavens and a new earth? For two reasons. The first is this. The Bible teaches that having the hope and the expectation of the new heavens and the new earth gives us a framework on how to live in the present. Again and again, we read about this in the Scriptures. For example, Peter, in reflecting upon the second coming, says, Therefore, beloved, since you are awaiting these things to happen, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Do you hear what Peter's saying there? He's saying, as we reflect upon this hope, this gives us a framework to understand why we should be living our lives in godliness right now. We need to frame our lives around this expectation of his return. And Jesus said this again and again and again in his stories that he told and in his parables. Here's just one of the many he told. In Matthew 24, he says, Stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord's coming. But know this, and then he tells the story. If a master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. So what the Scriptures teach us is this hope, this expectation of Jesus' coming and giving us new bodies and being in a new heaven and a new earth frames for us the reason why we should be living a life of holiness right now. We ought to have this expectation. There's no way to know when that day is going to be. But we need to live with the expectation that He is and to shape our lives in conformity with the way that we would want to be presented to Him when He comes. There's a second reason behind this hope, and it's this. The hope is built solidly upon the promises of God and upon the death and resurrection of Christ. We can have this hope as a solid expectation because of God's promises. Going all the way back to Father Abraham, when God made a covenant with Abraham and then reestablished that covenant again and again and again, 
and finally fulfilled it in Jesus. The promises of God, the scriptures say, are yea and amen. That means you can count on them. And our hope is built upon the promise of God that he will be the one who accomplishes it. But it's not only built upon his promises. He has stamped those promises with the with the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He said, you want to see this hope in full glory? Look at my resurrection. This is what the author of Hebrews says. The author of Hebrews underlines both of these things in Hebrews 6 and 19 through 20. Now, there's a lot of allusions in the book of Hebrews to the Old Testament. But what he writes there is he said, when God desired to show a more convincing, to show more convincingly, the unchangeable character of his purpose. And what he means by that, the unchangeable character of his purpose is the hope that he has established for you and for me. He says he's done this in two ways. First, he guaranteed it with an oath. Those are the promises, the covenant and promises. He's guaranteed it with an oath. But secondly, he says, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now, when we hear that, we say, what is the author talking about? But if a Jew read that, they'd say, ah, I know exactly what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus, when he died and rose again, and the the curtain in the temple was torn in two, the curtain keeping all all of God's people away from the Holy of Holies, what it's saying is that Jesus has gone into the temple in heaven. And he has opened up the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. He has opened that up to us because he himself is the forerunner who has gone behind the curtain and he has gone there on our behalf to prepare a place for us. So he said, so that where I am, you can be with me also. This is the solid hope that God has given us. This is the hope that shapes us as we consider how we are planning to live our lives. So, that's why it's important. And the key to all of this is not so much for us to gain a clarity and a complete understanding of the intermediate state, of what our bodies are going to be like, of what the heavens are going to, what heaven's going to be like, and what the heaven, new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. You see, it all revolves around Jesus. The whole story focuses on Jesus because Jesus is the one who is going to bring about the restoration. He is the one that we worship today, and he is the one that we'll worship in the intermediate state, and we'll worship him in the new heavens and the new earth. The issue is not so much about the restoration. It's about the restorer. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So these are the things we can know. When we die, our souls will immediately go to Jesus. Our souls are going to be reunited with new bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And the focus throughout the entire time is going to be on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, among other things. And of course, we read all of the adventures of Peter and 
Susan and Lucy through those books. But finally, he came to his last book, The Last Battle. And on the last page of the last book, we read that Peter and Susan and Lucy are killed in a train wreck. But instead of ending this story in a sense of morose sadness, this is what C.S. Lewis writes. The things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful, I can't even write them. As for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, for them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this morning, I'm thinking of my buddy Mike, laying on that hospital bed, I'm thinking of Maria, Lord, sitting there next to him in the ICU, not sure if he's ever going to wake up. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have for Mike and you have for all of us a story which we can't even begin to imagine, a story of which what we have experienced thus far is only, as C.S. Lewis says, the title page and the front cover. Thank you for the promises stated again and again and again and again in the Scriptures that Jesus is going to come again and we are going to be with Him forever. Thank you that this hope gives us meaning and definition today to live our lives with a sense of reckless abandon, trusting in Him for our our daily bread and asking for His kingdom to come and for His will to be done on earth as it is is even done in heaven. Lord, we pray that you would give us a sure and steady hope in these expectations of the new heaven and a new earth so that we can live today in your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.